So um, I'm going to introduce our next speaker. So this is Dr. Elaine Husney, and she is currently the Vice Chair and Director of the Arthritis and Musculoskeletal Disease Center at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, she has a particular interest in the areas of spondyloarthritis. And I learned um, today that she actually was the founder of the clinic that Dr. Merle and I worked at um, at the Brigham. So, um, you know, it's really interesting to get to meet different colleagues from different times. So um, without further ado, she's going to talk to us about psoriatic arthritis. Home stretch on the second day. I'm so impressed that people are still here. Um, so I'm second to last talk today. It's great to see everyone. Uh, so I, we're going to turn our attention to psoriatic arthritis. I know uh, just being at the meeting so far, there's been uh, a lot uh, around this topic. You know, it's funny when I've always been interested in psoriatic arthritis. And when I used to go to the ACR meeting, which is our national meeting, we used to have like these little booths on the corner. And now psoriatic arthritis, spondyloarthritis is sort of as, as big as, as rheumatoid arthritis in terms of the treatments um, that we have. So it's a really exciting um, time uh, to, uh, uh, to be talking about this disease. Um, so here are some of my disclosures, uh, learning objectives that you see here. So I'll go over a little bit about the pathogenesis, which um, I know will be a little bit of a repeat, um, some of the obstacles we face, and um, sort of the current treatment barriers that we have. Um, um, so this is our, our classic for uh, those of us who train rheumatology fellows. This is sort of the interrelated diseases um, that, that are all in the spondyloarthritis family. And because they all uh, share some immune and genetic uh, uh, markers together, they're sort of grouped as a family of diseases. Um, the most common is the uh, ankylosing spondylitis, who um, as has been going under sort of a change. I know we're not talking about that today, but it's important to to uh, remind us that these, uh, as this pathogenesis is being um, better understood, we're changing the way that we're talking about um, naming these um, diseases as well. So this is psoriatic arthritis. You know, Dr. Rosenbaum had some really cool pictures, so I thought I'd add some pictures too. So the point of this is to remind us that it's, it's not just skin and joints, so there's a lot of um, also uh, extra articular, extra cutaneous manifestations um, as well that I will go over. So here is... Uh, Sort of how I think about it, I think what is different from rheumatoid arthritis is that there are many different patterns and you can fall in and out of some of these patterns. So you can have clinical patterns with our either peripheral or distal involvement, oligoarticular. Um, you can also have five different domains, and I'll talk about that. That becomes important when we look at our treatment algorithms. And then there's also five different presentations of skin disease that can occur as well. So as you can imagine, there's a myriad of ways that your patients can present. So how do you develop treatment um, algorithms? How do you think about um, your patient moving forward? So some of the unmet needs or challenges as I was thinking about doing this talk, I was like, what, what do people want to sort of hear about? What, what can you not just get? Um, from doing a PubMed search and on these, all these uh, treatments that we have available. So what I found interesting as a whole is that despite all these extra treatments that we have for psoriatic arthritis, I would say that the skin is really beating the joints. I mean, you are seeing skin disease clearance like we've never seen before. Um, but yet the joints, whether it be an older therapy that we know of, of an anti-TNF, or one of the newer therapies, we're really still talking about the same joint coverage. There isn't really... Um, you know, in, in our rheumatology world, an ACR 100 that we're seeing like we are with PASI 100s. We also know that despite um, having a, sort of a precursor for psoriatic arthritis, right, most patients have psoriasis first, uh, and about a third of the psoriasis patients go on, we still don't really know who's going to go on to psoriatic arthritis. 
And despite all these numerous therapies, the management and, and treatment algorithms um, are, are um, evolving, and I'm going to go over some of the treatment guidelines as well. So what makes psoriatic arthritis different from rheumatoid arthritis? The first and foremost is we do a lot of x-rays as rheumatologists, and what do we look for? We look for erosions. We look for things that are poor prognostic factors. But what's interesting in the spondyloarthritis is not only do we see erosions, right? We also see uh, bony proliferation um, and, and where bone is laying down. So in ankylosing spondylitis, we see syndesmophytes, and in, in psoriatic arthritis, we can see uh, bony proliferation. So why, why are we having two different things um, that are sort of ongoing in psoriatic arthritis? So, uh, so looking at pathogenesis, I always like to see these cartoons, and they're always colorful and, and a little bit difficult to... to, to uh, to kind of read sometimes. So, but the important thing is here is that this is a highly, highly regulated network of immune cells that work in sync. And when we think it can be so easy as when we see one upregulated and we try to block it, it doesn't always treat all the manifestation of the diseases because these immune cells are working together. So here's a, a, just an example of looking at the joints and looking at the skin. Um, they share a lot of the same mechanisms, but really it's a dysregulation um, where something is getting triggered uh, and really tips the balance to a pro-inflammatory cytokine pattern. And many of our treatments are aimed at blocking. And so I challenge you to think, is really blocking the way we should go or is rebalancing the way we should go? And although we may not have a treatment that rebalances, it's something that we really are, are probably our goal because just simply blocking sometimes does not treat all the manifestations. Uh, so I love this cartoon. I'm going to spend a little time on it if I can figure out how to use, use the pointer. But for those that are uh, not uh, rheumatologists, you might not be as, as familiar with the emphysitis, but that's where it all starts. And this is what makes it really different. Because in rheumatoid arthritis, the bulk of the, what's happening I always think of is that it's starting from the inside. It's starting from the synovium inside the joint. While the spondyloarthritis is really starting a little bit outside the joint or in the emphysitis. So the emphysitis is this area where the tendons, ligaments meet the bone. And in this area is where we see an upregulation of IL-23. So for those who are looking on this side, so uh, IL-23 here. Now what triggers the increase in IL-23, which is a survival mechanism for Th17, we don't really know. So these are these little boxes that you see here. So it could be uh, maybe something to do with the gut microbiome, and we've talked a lot about that in, during this uh, uh, this uh, conference. Uh, maybe there's changes or dysregulation in the gut microbiome that triggers IL-23. Maybe it's a genetic factor, um, an unfolding protein. Maybe it's biomechanical stress. So the areas that we see emphysitis being affected are usually areas um, that undergo a lot of uh, physical stress. And so this is an area of big uh, research interest, trying to figure out what triggers um, the production of uh, or overexpression of IL-23, which then allows you, as you can see in this uh, nice cartoon, I, I just love this um, article by Sherlock, so what it does is then um, it goes on to producing um, IL-22 and IL-17, and then further on the cytokines that involve um, the changes that we pick up on x-rays or we pick up um, on exams, so the ankylosing, the bony fusions um, that we see. So enthesitis, I'm just going to go over some of the clinical manifestations just to remind us. So this is what we see clinically from what I just showed you, um, where the inflammation of the tendon meets the bone. Achilles tendon is one of the most common, easiest places for us to see, but you can get it um, in the elbows. You can get it on the tops of your knees as well. 
dactylitis. This we don't see as often, but when we see it, it's great because then we know, you know, you're, you kind of fall in the spondyloarthritis family. So this is that typical sausage toe, sausage fingers um, that's easy to spot, but not always there. But when it's there, it's very helpful. I know you've gotten a lot of uh, derms, and my derms colleagues have talked about different um, presentations of skin disease. Uh, what I think is interesting with skin disease is that we're learning that perhaps some of the nail changes that we see um, could be a risk factor for psoriatic arthritis. So this is a big area where we're doing ultrasound work and really trying to understand the mechanisms, um, how interesting it is that, that the, where the nail's affected is usually where the joints are affected. Um, and we also know that skin usually precedes uh, uh, joint um, development. So here's that CASPER criteria. So here, um, this is really a classification criteria, so not so much to diagnose. But in our clinical trials, we really try hard to get the same type of patients in. So how do we do that? So what we do is we usually list inclusion criteria. So here you have to start with somebody with inflammatory arthritis, um, and then you have to get some points. And how do you get the points? So if you get greater than three points, um, then you make the classification criteria for psoriatic arthritis. So here, um, as you can see, is the list of things to get points. So you actually don't even have to have active psoriasis. You can have a family history or a personal history of psoriasis. Um, nail dystrophy is on there, a negative rheumatoid factor. Uh, dactylitis is on there, as well as radiographic um, changes. So this is an area of interest of mine as I was doing uh, the Derm Room Clinic, is that um, if there's, uh, you know, 300 million Americans um, and about 3%, and I know that's changes um, of the U.S. population um, that has, uh, a psoriasis, uh, has psoriasis, um, there's this really important window. Um, it used to be 10 years, but now I see studies showing that there's a shorter time period between when the skin develops and when the joint, um, joint manifestations develop. Um, and this is really a great window for us to think about how we can get these patients uh, diagnosed sooner. So one of the things I've, uh, in, in doing my uh, derm room clinic uh, with Abrar Qureshi, uh, we noticed that uh, many patients are seen by the derms. And dermatology doesn't necessarily order x-rays. They don't uh, ask about inflammatory back pain. They may or may not ask about morning stiffness. I, I think we're all getting better, especially with these IAS uh, summit, where we're meeting people from different disciplines. But on a whole, dermatologists are not trained the same way that rheumatologists are trained. So Abrar and I thought, well, you know, it might be nice to maybe survey these uh, patients that are coming into the dermatologist, not not overall in primary care, and maybe ask them some questions. So this is a patient-directed questionnaire that I did as a fellow. Um, and basically, it only takes a couple minutes to do. And if you get a certain cutoff, uh, a certain number of scores, they, uh, there are 15 questions that look at symptoms um, and function. And there's lots of screening questionnaires that are out now since they ca this came out. Um, but it's a way to uh, maybe help the patient and the dermatologist get to uh, rheumatology sooner. Uh, so we talked a little bit about uh, extra articular and extra uh, cutaneous manifestations. So here's just to remind us, I don't have time to go over all the comorbidities, but it's always good. I know you can't do uh, this all in one visit, but you try as you're knowing your patients over time, you really, you know, this month, next month, you try to go over some of these comorbidities. Um, you just try to keep it alert. You try to educate the patient so they come to you also when they start having any GI symptoms um, or things like that. 
I will go over some comorbidities that I think is important. Uh, depression, for example, I think is something that we all know that can influence um, the way that the patient responds to treatment and how they're doing in their life. Um, so there's a high prevalence of depression um, and anxiety. Um, there are certain therapies, such as a primalas and Braldolumab, um, that uh, are associated with some worsening of mental health issues. So those are something you might want to have a conversation with your patient. You might choose different therapies depending on uh, uh, how their mental health um, is. Obesity, you know, we talked a lot about um, obesity as being a pro-inflammatory sort of environment. But what I think is really interesting here in this study, it looked at people that were uh, the odds of achieving something called MDA. So MDA is minimal disease activity. So what are the chances of somebody um, reaching a, a low disease activity state if they're overweight or if they're obese? And what this study found is that as you gain, as your BMI is elevated, you actually don't respond to medication um, as, as well as you could have. And so that has a lot of implications. We see a lot of patients in our office that are overweight. Uh, and it's, it's difficult because you have less time now in the clinic, but yet you're gaining more understanding of comorbidities. And where is that line of, um, you know, trying to help your patient? But I think studies like this, which really tells us that therapy is actually different um, in patients that are overweight, I think becomes a much more crucial conversation um, that you can have with your patient. Cardiovascular, I know that uh, we've been going over a lot of cardiovascular studies. Uh, psoriatic arthritis is no different than many of the other immune-mediated uh, uh, diseases. Um, there's an increased risk of uh, cardiovascular disease. These are some of the studies. Don't have time to go over each of them, but just to let um, to remind us um, that it's um, also seen in psoriatic arthritis. This is a study I did a couple years ago say, thinking about whether or not having psoriasis alone or having psoriatic arthritis that affects both the skin and the joints, is somebody with psoriatic arthritis worse than somebody with psoriasis? So here we looked at something called IMT, so um, that's uh, uh, intimate media thickness. Um, this uh, it's between the yellow line and the pink line. The yellow line, the pink line you can see here is a little bit wider. Um, anything greater than one millimeter is considered positive in ultrasound. And this is sort of an indirect way to look for atherosclerosis or early atherosclerosis. So what this is showing us here is that there is um, not only plaque, but increased intermedial thickness in patients with psoriatic arthritis compared to psoriasis. So there may be some differences amongst the diseases that we might have to think about, and there's lots of other newer studies also uh, looking at the differences between um, these uh, folks as well. So screening considerations, so you saw the chart with all the different extraarticular and extracutaneous uh, manifestations. So this is just a little uh, chart graph just to, to remind us what do we do about screening. Um, we are sort of all over the map. Our patients aren't uh, you know, probably um, bucketed as well as sort of somebody with diabetes where the AHA have certain guidelines. So we know that there's a risk, but whether or not there's actually um, guidelines from the American Heart Association to help us with cardiovascular risk may not exactly be there, but it's important um, to think about these things. And these are some of the ways that we can screen uh, for some of these comorbidities. So the last half of the talk, I'm going to focus on mechanism and treatment. So uh, this is a uh, this is a uh, little graph that I did, and I don't expect people to sort of uh, memorize it, but uh, there is psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and ankylosing spondylitis. And I think what I'm trying to point out here is look at where all the red dots are, right? So it's kind of 
more towards the ankylosing spondylitis. So despite all these new treatments and our understanding of the IL-17, um, uh, the IL-23 and um, TH17 axis pathway, there's still a lot that we have to do in ankylosing spondylitis. As you can see, a lot of the treatments that you would think that work in this family of diseases don't move forward in the ankylosing spondylitis. And a lot of it that is good in psoriasis is also may not be good in psoriatic arthritis, which I think is really interesting to note. So this is just sort of a color schematic landscape um, that, uh, that I wanted to do. So what's new in TNF? I'm just going to go over some of these classes. Um, so TNF therapy, so the uh, green is ACR. So ACR is um, the way that we measure joints. And I'm going to superimpose it onto uh, PASI, which is the skin. And as you can see, um, the skin sort of um, in blue kind of beats a lot of uh, what you see in green, showing that TNFs um, can clear skin a little bit better than it can clear uh, joints. So other things that are new, we have uh, Aria Symphony, um, which now uh, has an IV form for approved for psoriatic arthritis. And then we have Sertralizumab uh, uh, Pagol uh, Simsia, which has some new studies in maternal fetal health. So just to remind us some of the, uh, I know that we're, we're really comfortable with anti-TNF therapy, but um, as we evolve, um, there are some um, new uh, indications. So here are some of the uh, studies that have come out, um, given that uh, Sertralizumab Pagol has a pegulated anti-TNF. Um, and in um, trials, we've seen um, that it does not cross uh, the uh, maternal-fetal um, transfer and sometimes can be um, safer in uh, women that are thinking of family uh, planning. So this is the crib and the cradle um, study that you guys can um, review. We had a morning session um, on this as well, but it's really um, nice to know uh, that we have some differences amongst the TNFs. Methotrexate. So methotrexate is something we are very, very comfortable with in psoriatic arthritis. Um, in, uh, I mean, uh, very comfortable in rheumatoid arthritis, sorry. But in psoriatic arthritis, we're not as clear whether or not uh, we should be using this in, uh, in combination with our TNF uh, therapies or not. So what do, what do you guys do with methotrexate? Do you tend to keep it on, raise your hands when you're treating? Or do you kind of pull it off and start when you're ready to start a next mechanism of action like a TNF? Um, so I'm going to talk about the SEAM trial. But before that, we want to think about um, why we might want to be keeping methotrexate on board. So if you look at um, sort of whether or not studies um, that, uh, that support using methotrexate, studies that support not to use, it's sort of um, overall I would say that most people still keep it on board. Um, because maybe it's what we're used to, maybe it's an immunogenicity issue. There's lots of reasons why somebody might keep methotrexate um, on board. Um, so here's a study uh, looking at uh, biologic survival uh, with the effect of methotrexate, uh, with, uh, specifically with uh, psoriatic arthritis. So what you can see here is that um, it may matter for some TNF more than others. Um, so this is a graph looking at uh, combination therapy versus monotherapy of the, um, so in things like infliximab, if you look at the middle chart, clearly um, you can see that methotrexate makes a difference uh, with some of the TNF. And then some of the other ones, it's not so clear. Uh, so this is the SEAM trial. So this led to the SEAM trial, which is uh, looking at etanercept um, and methotrexate um, in either uh, monotherapy or combination. So this is sort of a long-awaited trial because we're trying to answer the question of what should I do with my methotrexate. 
And interestingly enough, it looks like monotherapy um, is, is doing uh, a well. So uh, we actually um, don't see an augmented benefit with methotrexate uh, with the SEAM trial. So this is sort of a long-awaited trying to figure out um, what to do uh, with this um, in terms of a randomized control phase three trial looking at this uh, particular question. So here's ACR20, uh, 50 and 70. So in all um, in all the arms, you can see is that um, that methotrexate monotherapy versus a combination therapy that um, you know that the uh, combination didn't really make um, as as big a, a difference. So monotherapy um, does does work. Um, so when you look back, you're like, well, why 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 are we even thinking about methotrexate? It's really confusing because if you look back at the studies. Um, there was a MIPA trial that started this whole sort of um, controversy and that methotrexate um, was not very effective in psoriatic arthritis. So, so really, should we be using it with uh, psoriatic arthritis? But then when you go and look at further studies, the Tycopa study, and then I have listed other studies here, Nordemard um, and other studies, RESPOND trial, it shows that methotrexate can sometimes um, uh, help. So I think it's a, a little bit... Um, a little bit uh, controversial what to do, but I think the SEAM trial was very helpful um, uh, in, in looking at this. But each of you know your own patients better, and there's other reasons other than efficacy. There's also um, survival um, things that we talk about in terms of uh, biologics. So IL-17, um, these um, are obviously a, um, a great new class. We have um, secotinimab and ixacizumab that's approved for, for psoriatic arthritis. Um, I use this chart because it kind of reminds me that even though it's an IL-17 blocker and you're, um, it actually has a lot of other various um, targets um, that can be useful. Uh, we now know that we have lots of uh, outcomes measures looking at dactylitis, emphysitis, where um, this drug is doing really well in addition to the skin and joints. Um, the skin, as you know, I don't have all the data here, but you, we are reaching PASI 100 um, um, for these patients. This is complete clearing, and this is something that we haven't seen uh, before. Unfortunately, I can't say the same thing for joints, um, but still it's a, a great drug um, to, um, to use for patients um, in psoriatic arthritis, so we have alternatives um, outside of um, anti-TNFs. Um, Abatasap is also approved. I know you've seen some of these uh, studies before looking that um, there is some benefit um, in, the, in joints and skin for psoriatic arthritis. Uh, we've also had a great talk with Dr. Strand on uh, JAK inhibitors. So uh, tofacitinib is approved, um, and shortly thereafter, there are many other uh, JAK inhibitors um, that are also being tested with some good response in psoriatic arthritis. So those are in earlier phase trials, and we'll be seeing uh, more of those as well. Uh, there are some also very new uh, mechanisms that are out there that we don't really even um, uh, know too much about. I thought this one was interesting. This is a nuclear receptor that's believed to drive further up both IL-17A, F, and 23, and these are small um, they are uh, developed as small molecule modulators um, that um, could be uh, given oral, orally. So that's why I thought they were interesting to, um, to mention. Um, the other ones, um, you know, I'm sorry, these are, this is actually not the exact slide set, so I'm a little, little thrown off. But 
This is um, to highlight uh, IL-23. So there's two subunits in IL-23. So I told you that overexpression is one of the most important things that we look at in the emphysitis. The two subunits are IL-23P19 and IL-12. And the reason that this is important, as you can see here, is um, there are drugs now specifically um, that are IL-23 blockers and drugs that are um, IL-1223 blockers. So that's used to kinemab. Um, and then the IL-23. So interestingly enough, the IL-23 is also very good in skin, has not done so well um, in joints, and it's unclear um, how they'll do. These are still early phases. They're approved for psoriasis. So as rheumatologists, we don't have as much experience, um, and um, as uh, we'll, we'll await uh, for some of the final uh, trials looking at psoriatic arthritis. But for, for psoriasis, um, things like galcelcumab, um, um, and I think, I believe, uh, rizikizumab or skyrizy was, um, uh, there was a lot of it during the AAD this uh, couple months ago. So these are IL-23 specific blockades that are doing wonderful in psoriasis um, and still more to come in terms of um, whether or not this is going to be um, used in psoriatic arthritis. Um, and then it uh, does not look like it's going through in the uh, ankylosing spondylitis um, family of, of uh so the other one I wanted to mention is bispecific antibodies. So in addition to the IL-17 family that we're very comfortable using or now that we know more of, there is now some new, uh, instead of just blocking IL-17A, uh, we have um, bimacizumab, which is blocking IL-17A and F, um, which with some very promising results in psoriatic arthritis. Um, so this is, uh, it neutralizes not only the IL-17A, but also F. Um, it, ha it shows improvement in both skin as well as the joint symptoms. So this is something to look after. The safety profile in early stages seem to be consistent with all the previous studies that we're used to. And it's in phase three development uh, for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So looking at general principles, so now that we've sort of did this sort of whirlwind looking at all the mechanisms that you've been sitting through for the past two days, how do we pick which drug is good for your patient? Um, and I think, uh, you know, we uh, really lack a good biomarker where I would love to know the ones that are going to develop worse skin or the ones that are going to develop worse joints, the ones that are going to go into erosions. Uh, and so how do you sort of uh, pick that first, uh, first drug? So what we have available to us are treatment guidelines. So I'm going to go over one of the older ones, which is GRAPA, uh, which is a group um, for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis um, research who came together um, looking at um, the GRAPA treatment guidelines, um, which is one of the figures that I took from them. So these um, guidelines are really focusing on uh, domains. So what that means is it really wants you to look at the patient and see where their dominant domain is and then follow an algorithm as opposed to labeling them as psoriatic arthritis uh, alone um, and going through an algorithm. So here you can see that the algorithms may be a little bit different if they have predominant uh, peripheral arthritis, if they have anthocytis predominant, if they have skin predominant. So they sort of go in a domain-like um, uh, uh, a treatment algorithm. Then the 2018 uh, uh, ACR-MPF treatment algorithms, um, this is just newly uh, published. Um, what I thought was kind of unique about this was that it included patients on the voting panel uh, for the treatment guidelines, so it's really nice to have patient input. Uh, it was really interesting being around the table and having patients there that 
are participating in the conversation um, for the treatment guidelines. I think the big news um, for this, um, this is one of the graphs taken um, from the publication, is that there is uh, sort of evidence behind showing that after an active uh, psoriatic arthritis patient and they don't do well um, on uh, a treatment-naive psoriatic arthritis patient um, who's active, um, it actually recommends um, starting um, an anti-TNF um, earlier on. So this was something that I think uh, was sort of a, a little bit of a different way that, that we may or may not be practicing, um, but these are some of the highlights um, of the treatment guidelines where for psoriatic arthritis, um, you uh, may be able to use um, a biologic um, uh, earlier. We also have talked a lot about treat to target. So in uh, rheumatoid arthritis, that's um, really been well known um, and has improved a lot of our patient outcomes. But in psoriatic arthritis, what do we know? Should we just borrow this over from RA and assume that all the same medicines we, we use are going to work and treat to target for psoriatic arthritis? And then what's your target in psoriatic arthritis? So if you're a rheumatologist, you probably tend to target more of the joints. And maybe if you're a dermatologist, you might target more of the skin. So when somebody has both, what kind of target are we looking at? What, what evidence do we have that treat to target also works um, for psoriatic arthritis? Um, so here we have something called minimal disease activity. This is um, a way to understand where's our target, right? So in order to look at trials that look at targets, we have to have a target that we all agree on in this room when someone presents with skin and joint diseases. So here the MDA has um, seven domains that it looks at, as you can see here. Um, total joint count less than one, swollen joint count less than one, and as you go down the list. And if you meet five out of seven of these um, these criteria or domains, then you're considered to be in minimal disease activity. So that's what they considered as their target. And this becomes important when you're trying to do a trial. So this is called the TICOPA trial, where they're uh, randomizing um, patients into tight control. So tight control, is as, as the word sounds, is that treatment group. Every three months, you're, you're uh, uh, looking out for your patient, you're making a change if they don't meet uh, minimal disease activity, or what they call usual care. So usual care is whenever you fit the patient in, however they do, you're just not using a metric and you're not changing things um, every time you don't meet a metric. So tight control versus usual care. And what they found is that um, the patients um, in, um, uh, whoops, sorry, the patients that are in the tight control group are doing better than the patients that are in usual care. So there, there is some evidence that treating to target is gonna improve patient outcomes. So this is one of our first studies um, looking um, at uh, this uh, treat to target in psoriatic arthritis, which looks um, promising. So many of you out there might be like, well, do I use MDA? Like, what if I don't use MDA? This, you know, it's like, how do I remember MDA? So I think the important thing is that we try to have a metric that you're comfortable with in your office that you can use and you use something. Just like in RA, there's so many different um, sort of target measures that we see. In psoriatic arthritis, there, there are also uh, evolving sort of um, uh, conversation about which um, target that we should, should meet. But I think the most important thing is to at least um, have one that you're comfortable with so that you can use it on your patients so that you can uh, be uh, better at trying to um, do the treat to target strategy. 
So um, as Mittal has en uh, mentioned at the beginning, um, I'm really passionate about having sort of co-management care or rheumatology and, and dermatology collaboration. I think it does really help a patient. Um, the patients really like knowing that you know who their dermatologist is or you know who their rheumatologist is. Uh, I think it creates uh, just more uh, conversation than just having, you know, perhaps notes that you read back and forth. There is some value in picking up the phone. So even if you don't have um, easily accessible germ room collaborations, um, I do see that we learn a lot beyond just reading um, a doctor's notes back and forth. Uh, I think there's opportunities for integrative teaching. Um, there is, you know, multiple ways that I've heard people do derm room. Joe Marola is running uh, something called Pac-Man, which is an innovative way of getting people across um, the U.S. to talk about uh, derm room collaborations. Um, and Pac-Man has been really helpful in sharing sort of best um, practice strategies. Um, so there's multiple different ways. People can do it virtually. People can do it all in the same room. But I think the important thing is that um, we feel comfortable talking um, amongst um, our different disciplines um, as well. So once again, I go back to uh, my very first slide, just thinking about um, what are sort of the unmet needs and challenges that we have. Um, so I just want to remind everyone that despite having all these new medications, these are really good for the skin. And we're really making a lot of big splashes. But in the joint world, it seems like, you know, um, even some of the newer therapies are still getting the same ACR 20, 50, 70. Um, and so we'll, what I'm hoping is that the next time I get up and talk to you guys that we'll have a drug um, that will be as good um, for the joints as it, as it is can be for the skin. Um, another area is really looking at your psoriasis patients and trying to find those that are going to have psoriatic arthritis because the earlier we treat, um, for psoriatic arthritis, the better their outcomes um, are as well. Um, and then despite all these new therapies, um, I gave you a flavor of some of the treatment algorithms that are out there. They're not always um, something that, are, uh, that you can just follow proscriptively. As you know, patients come in different flavors and they have different comorbidities and you end up choosing different um, treatment based on that. So we're still a little ways of having a biomarker or something that we can know ahead of time. Um, so here's just some of the key summaries um, that I talked about in terms of early diagnosis, um, treating a domain. So I think that's an important concept. We're really looking at a patient as a, a sort of a, maybe a domain-driven um, um, collaboration. Hopefully, um, you know, this meeting has been really helpful as, you know, you roam the hallways with people. You, you know, it's uh, interesting because I usually go to meetings where everybody's a rheumatologist and I don't really have to ask, oh, are you a gastroenterologist or are you a dermatologist. But at this meeting, as you know, there's a lot of mix. I think that's really great. Uh, so applying treat to target, educating patients, um, I think are all going to help. I think we are much more in an era where there's a lot more shared decision making um, than, uh, you know, than we used to having. Um, and I think it's important with all of the biologics um, that you have a conversation that they feel that they're part of. I think it helps with adherence um, as well. So I think that is all that I have. So Thank you. Do you want to take some questions or you guys want to come up for the panel? I think Elaine will be around, so feel free to you know, attack oh, her you. as she leaves the podium here. Yeah. What will make you uh, switch your passion to Jack inhibitor versus? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I, I guess it depends if, um, 
if a patient has absolutely no response to previous to, to a TNF, let's say, or they have partial response, so that kind of weighs in. Um, I think that oral is a very attractive, you know, so patients that, I know I have some patients that travel a lot, and it's hard to keep things refrigerated, so I think there's a lot of, um, of uh, different venues that, that kind of create that situation. I don't know if I can say that I would switch to a JAK inhibitor because I think it'll have a better joint uh, coverage than, you know, I just feel that people that are just not responding, I would look for a different um, mechanism of action. But I think that that's where treatment algorithms are not as helpful as we want to, so it's more based on our clinical practice. Thank you. Thank you, guys.